Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And in late February 2020, global markets were reporting the largest one-week decline since the global financial crisis. And in the following March, markets fell a further 25 to 30% due to a combination of the coronavirus and an oil war led by Saudi Arabia and Russia. The health and financial crisis led to a liquidity tsunami, and that's what investment teams of the nation's largest superannuation funds were facing following a three-pronged impact of foreign exchange margin calls off the back of the markets plunging, member switching between options, and policy change with the first tranche of the COVID-19 early release scheme announced. Fast forward to today, and we're now in the second early release window, leaving investment teams across the country grappling with the policy aftermath. Today, we're really excited to be joined by SunSuper's Head of Asset Allocation, Andrew Fisher, who helps generate the retirement dreams of over 1.4 million SunSuper members. And with so much rich content to discuss, Andrew has agreed to talk to us over two QPOD episodes, with today's episodes focusing on the impact the rapidly shifting liquidity needs has made on SunSuper and Andrew's team as it's swept across the investment landscape. He'll then join us again to talk further on what this all means for long-term investment strategies. Andrew, thank you for joining us today on QPod. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, as are we. Um, Andrew, I thought we could uh, put to the side for the moment the tsunami I described before for the financial markets and, of course, for the health of our, you know, the, globals, the global people as well. But I thought we could start off with a quick overview of how you would describe your role within a modern superannuation fund as the head of asset allocation and perhaps what you're finding to be the most least understood or perhaps underrated part of your role. All right, good question. Um, I'm. Um, it's one. It's one of those questions you get an awful lot, um, particularly when you go to barbecues. What do you do all day? Um, it's also a question I get from my team sometimes. I feel like Craig is. What does Andrew do all day? Um, so I'll do my best to answer that um, in a fairly comprehensive way. Um, so within and look, I think in every organisation it'll be a little bit different, but I think there's probably a few big pillars of asset allocation. One is long-term investment strategy. So we offer a range of investment choices on our platform for members. Um, different risk profiles are looking for different things. Um, the, I'd say the fundamental role of asset allocation is setting that long-term investment strategy. So how do you build a portfolio to robustly deliver on the investment objectives that you offer to your members? Um, so we do, we do a range of diversified options. Um, then also within those, uh, you have your long-term investment strategy, but then you also have those sort of medium-term uh, views, tactical opportunities, uh, dynamic asset allocation, tactical asset allocation, use whatever term you like, but really trying to enhance that long-term outcome uh, using some of the insights that we have into markets. Um, but then I think perhaps the area that doesn't get um, doesn't get as much, uh, I guess, airplay uh, in the world of asset allocation is implementation of those views and I think that's an area where you can add quite a lot of value um, and for us it's almost it's almost as important as the dynamic views we have is how we implement them so implementation and that's thinking about where to use derivatives where to use physical investment how much active risk to be taking in different asset classes. So allocating out active risk and then also thinking about where we use derivatives, how we rebalance the portfolios, when to rebalance, um, how to rebalance our hedging positions. Um, it's a really broad area um, and 
you'd obviously know it fairly well because it's something that QIC helps us out with um, quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, that's that's probably a pretty good summary of what we do. All right, one for your teammates as well there, Andrew. And when you look at the funds, you know, it's it's growing rapidly and SunSuper has also been touted as a potential mega fund, a new term for our industry in the last couple of years. How do you anticipate your role changing as you look to become a much larger and, and sort of mega fund status? Uh, look, I think when we, when we think about investment strategy, um, it's not just what's your strategic asset allocation, it's how so and if you think about the growth trajectory we have and thinking about setting that investment strategy it's not just okay we want 28 percent equities um it's a much bigger decision around well what's the capacity for the domestic equity market to um meet our needs over the next five ten years and so thinking about how like so i think when we think about how the job evolves i mean i think what we're what we're thinking about from the um, planning and investment strategy um, side of things is really thinking about what what is the investment landscape going to look like five, 10 years forward and how do we set an investment strategy to meet it? And we've also got to think how resilient is that investment strategy to the growth we're going to experience? Um, and today versus five years ago, I think we're probably asking questions around five years ago, we'd be asking questions around the capacity of the small cap market in Australia to consume our growth. If you think about a mega fund, we're thinking about the whole Australian equity market and its ability to consume our growth. Yeah, great answer. And I like the way you sort of raised there the resilience of the fund because I was going to take us back to those pre-COVID days. Believe it or not, Andrew, it was only five months ago that we were sort of riding high in the markets. Um, what was the course your fund was on at that point in time in early February? And I presume that you had an investment strategy with a longer term horizon. So it'd be good to understand the fund's positioning and the investment or competitive thesis behind this at that point in time. Yes. Uh, so we, so obviously our, our thesis and our, um, not obviously, but our thesis and our investment strategy is very much long term. So we don't, we don't seek to, we don't seek to design investment strategy around being the smartest people in the world or the smartest investors in the world. We seek to extract our competitive advantages. Those competitive advantages are the cash flow growth that we've sort of already mentioned, um, uh, which gives us a big appetite, a big capacity to access illiquid, illiquid assets and uh, an appetite for illiquidity risk premium, which is one we believe is rewarded. So we do typically. Um, aim to have an allocation to illiquid assets and alternative assets that is higher than um, many other funds. That's because we have cash flows that are stronger than most funds. Um, so that's a competitive advantage that gives us, that we can access over the long term. Um, the other area is we tend to be, tend to try to be fairly disciplined around allocations in listed markets around that. Uh, so we don't tend to take large views uh, directionally against equity markets, for example. And actually, going into the end of February, we found equity markets marginally cheap. And it's hard to remember now, but uh, the fairly consensus view coming into the start of the year was a trade war that was uh, starting to resolve itself and a mild acceleration in growth in the US. Uh, so at that point in time, most people were positioned, if anything, marginally overweight rather than under. Uh, that all changed very quickly, of course. It did. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose the question you, you mentioned, you know, you don't 
sort of try to rely on being the smartest investors in the room, but you try and utilize your competitive advantages. And you mentioned their uh, cash fund growth, uh, cash flow growth rather. Um, when you're accessing these markets, though, Andrew, does it matter to you whether you're accessing them from an active point of view or a passive point of view? It's been a debate in our industry for a long time. How do you think about that? Uh, look, so we think we so to to put it into like really um, investment philosophy terms, we believe markets are inefficient in places and that active management can add value but we think that that inefficiency is relatively scarce um, and so the the one of the most important disciplines around the use of active management is getting it at a price so that the benefits of the active management are equally shared between us the investor and the manager who's um, accessing that excess return so we think that the pricing is a really important discipline. So one of our investment beliefs is value for money. So when we think about using active management and we think about paying managers to add value in our fund, uh, we're really thinking about what return we're getting on the money that goes out the door rather than taking a view that, okay, equities are inefficient, so we're going to be active there. We use active and passive across listed markets um, and we use active where we think we're going to get an adequate reward on the money we spend. Fantastic. So basically, in summary, position for growth, uh, looking at those trade wars sort of simmering down and, and a, a strong outcome in the future. But then, of course, everything changed. And uh, then we started hearing about the viral outbreaks bubbling out of China. And today we're living in a very different world, one that's very socially distanced as COVID continues to spread across the globe. I think today we've got 16.5 million confirmed cases. And also in Australia at the moment, we've got New South Wales and Victoria are struggling to contain outbreaks and news overnight that Queensland is reassessing their border crossings. So can you take us through the journey of what your team underwent as that panic, uh, pandemic rather unfolded and the under, and then in the impacts that came to be understood? Yeah, look, it was, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to even remember some of the feelings you went through back in that time because it all happened so quickly. That's one thing I do remember is just the pace at which everything was changing. Um, and I can remember having meetings where um, where we were, don't worry about this, this will be fine. Don't worry about this, this will be fine. Don't worry about this, this will be fine. And then, oh, this isn't fine. Um, and that's that was, um, and, and I don't think we would be would have been unique in that. Um, actually, I think the last time uh, I did something like this was uh, during that, and I was probably saying, don't worry, everything will be fine. Um, <laughs> and and that's the the great thing about being recorded, right? It's there for it's there forever, and you can hear how perhaps uh, inaccurate some of those views were. But it's what's I think what we tried to do throughout, uh, and we think about what, what we tried to do without is maintain a level of I mean dispassionate, um, dispassionate objective objectivity to the information that was in front of us, and make those decisions as best we could. Um, and so I, what, so what we did do, so for example, going into the, uh, event being overweight, marginally overweight, uh, we weren't selling assets as they were falling. Uh, we were seeing opportunities to buy and we were taking them, I think, and we'll probably touch on this a little later on liquidity made things challenging. Um, so we were faced, we're faced with a multitude of challenges from a liquidity front. Um, and I think like all funds, we had our liquidity management well and truly stress tested uh we were yeah i think we were happy to be able to make the decisions that we made without being constrained from that perspective 
but even still with the pace at which things were happening, my observation and learning through that was anywhere where we had already already set up a process to make a decision. So if X happens, we will do Y. Uh, we were able to do that. Anywhere where you saw things, you thought, saw opportunities emerge uh, that you hadn't prepared for, it was almost impossible to almost impossible to get all the ducks in a row to make that decision if you hadn't already planned for it in advance. But you'd gone through the GFC, Andrew, and you'd been in a sort of similar role back then. Um, it, it was different this time around, wasn't it? Yeah, the difference this time was the pace of it. Um, and so if you think about if you think about the the stress test that you'd run in the GFC, the, what happened here wasn't that dissimilar. Actually, wasn't even as bad. It's just that it happened in three or four weeks, whereas the GFC happened emerged over twelve to eighteen months. And then at the end of the GFC, you had all sorts of time to sit there, assess the situation, think, you know what, yeah, this looks like a good opportunity to go long. Governments are going to governments are going to do a lot. They're going to respond. They're going to bail out everybody, and we can get on this. Um, in this situation, you had about 48 hours to make a decision. And when, and during those 48 hours, everything looked disastrous. Um, you're facing a pandemic situation, something that you ha- markets hadn't seen really for a long time. We hadn't seen an economy, like the global economy effectively shut down in the way it was. Um, and even today, we don't really know. Um, economies aren't things that are designed to be shut down and then started back up again. Uh, so, I mean, even today, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but I think markets have repriced fairly quickly and treated this more like a natural disaster as opposed to an economic disaster. Yeah, I'm going to get into the the optimism that the markets are showing uh, in a little while, so I'll come back to that particular point. But during this sort of liquidity front, as you described it, and I'm assuming those opportunities to buy early were sort of early calls, it might have um, dissipated reasonably quickly. You're also of course, changing how you actually physically work. So your team was going through change. I'm assuming there was lots of change in the way you're engaged with members as well. Um, So I'd like to sort of get you to touch on those two themes. And were you making any asset allocation changes during that period as well? Um, Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I think it's easy to forget just how challenging it was to be faced with this sort of um, this sort of investment crisis environment, um, and then be sitting at home on your own, looking at a screen, um, and uh, not having that. I guess that that human that human element of being able to sort of look at people, talk to them, and get a sense of um, get a sense of how people are holding up, and who's 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 accessible, who can help you. Um, you're kind of relying on picking up a phone or. Um, punching in a video conference and hoping the technology at the other end is working. Um, and so that's a, that, was a, that was a big additional stress around all of this. Um, so I think what was fantastic, I guess, from our perspective was the, um, the, speed, uh, the speed at which we were able to effectively just keep things going. Um, so it was really was a seamless um, Seamless technology transition on our side, and what we found was, in most cases, um, if not all cases, any of our service providers um, or um, asset managers, people, people in a people in a critical role for us, were all available and accessible. So that made life incredibly um, an awful lot easier. So things could have been an awful lot harder. I think um, that was helpful. Now, in terms of the last prong of that question, asset allocation decisions. So. This is another area where 
so we did make uh, we did make a number of decisions, asset allocation decisions through the crisis. We didn't um, we didn't make uh, what I'd call large um, large sort of chunky decisions. We were just making incremental changes to positioning as it moved, consistent with um, process that we had in place before it all happened. So when I was so basically sort of using your, your TA and tactical sort of skills rather than doing making strategic changes. Exactly right, yes. And this this comes back to the sort of GFC example. In the GFC example, I think you could have made strategic changes because you had a bit of time to think about it. But I don't know that you can make strategic changes in a couple of days. Um, so, so we were definitely... Definitely uh, taking advantage when markets uh, were selling off and getting cheap. We were definitely buying, um, and so that and that's worked well. And we've uh, sold some of that uh, positioning back again. We took advantage of the moves in the currency, for example. Um, but that was all fairly. I mean, the models that we used to make those decisions already existed, and we already knew the sorts of decisions we'd make if that happened. And the size and scale of the downturn, while it was faster than we would have modelled, it was consistent with what we'd expect um, a market correction to look like. Um, and the sort of breadth of opportunity that we expect to see when markets sell off, it was somewhat consistent with our modelling. Um, so it didn't surprise us from that perspective, but the speed at which it was all happening was yeah, something of a surprise. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, you know, huge change in the way that people literally behaved and operated, um, which, you know, very hard to, uh, to stress test for. The obvious next question, though, is, you know, what worked really well for you during that upheaval? You talked before about the strength of your liquidity management processes. Uh, what else worked really well during, your, during this period of managing for the crisis? Um, I mean, that's probably the, the – so there's probably a couple of areas – that's a big one though. Um, so one of our, yeah, one of our bigger, one of our bigger positives in the portfolio was actually liquidity management um, and how we did that. Um, so that worked, that did, that did work really well. Another area, um, another area where there was a lot of challenges in terms of managing the portfolio. So this is less around return and just more around how we made, how we manage the portfolio from a risk perspective was um, in terms of the, um, I guess in terms of our infrastructure around valuing our portfolio, um, because again, when something like this happens as quickly as it does, uh, you don't. I mean, when there's that many moving parts, uh, you can't you can't necessarily rely and wait for um, external valuations to come in. So that was another area where we were able to move really quickly, uh, but not just quickly, thoughtfully as well. Um, and so we made. We made decisions very quickly in that space, but they weren't sort of blanket decisions. They were sort of thought through decisions at each level. So we had infrastructure in place to make those decisions. Um, and then what we found was there was very little, very little adjustment to those decisions when the actual valuations came in. Um, so that's work, that worked really well for us. Um, and then I think like at the margins, being able to take advantage of opportunities um, and so, for example, we were having uh, we were having sort of regular regular meetings around this. And to give you like the list, and I mean this list is pretty common. Everyone wanted to do the same things. We managed to get all of these done. Um, we had liquidity available to take advantage. I mean, not much, but a small number of sort of distressed credit opportunities um, uh, towards the bottom of the market. We set up 
um, in really quick time capacity to um, have managers have sort of dedicated um, cash flows available to take advantage of all the recapitalizations in Australian equity. So we've participated quite strongly in that. Um, we touched on our dynamic asset allocation. So being disciplined and um, buying markets, uh, buying markets when the opportunity was there worked well from us from an asset allocation point of view. Um, and then the other area is in fixed income. Um, whilst I don't, the opportunity hasn't yet presented, um, there was a lot of talk around the uh, TALF term asset backed loan funding facility in the US. So that's another thing that we uh, we're very quick to move on, um, get access to. We haven't. I'm not sure that much of that capital has been deployed, if any. Um, but the capacity's there. Um, so I'd say there wasn't, there were, there weren't an awful lot of shining lights um, through the crisis itself. Um, but I think our capacity to, our capacity to respond to that and recognise, okay, well, that, that that's in the past. Um, we're investing for the future and move quickly to take advantage of the opportunities as they opened up. And I couldn't agree more with regards to your comments there around the use of technology and how effective it was. And I'm hoping as well that for the members out there, that accessibility to all the superannuation funds would sort of help support and promote the sort of resilience of the industry to sort of meet those member needs. So, and being obviously one of the bigger and more prominent funds um, that goes a long way to sort of providing that uh, support and, and relief, I suppose, to members as well. Let's switch gears a little bit here, Andrew, and talk about the early release scheme. Um, we've had a number of funds come out over the last number of weeks and months sort of talking about how they were very comfortable with the early release scheme, what we was trying to achieve for members, no questions there. But when it comes to your role within this as an asset allocation manager, what was top of mind for you and your team and the impact it might have on your portfolio construction. Um, so look, I think we were we were absolutely comfortable. So look, so from from a member perspective, um, I think it's I think it's great that superannuation is able to help members in a really challenging period. Uh, but I think like everything, everything was happening very quickly. So um, if you think about the date when this was announced, it was pretty much announced at the bottom of the market. And so if you think about sort of pace of what's going on here, you have a market correction happening faster than you've ever seen and uh, you have an economic environment that is essentially unlike anything you've really faced before. Um, I think the last global pandemic is about 100 years ago and we didn't have the same sort of markets we had then So, and we didn't have the same economic response then either. Um, economies weren't shut down in that scenario. So... It, that that's all quite challenging as you face with all of these new challenges. Um, as you can probably imagine, uh, what we had was fairly meaningful member switching um, in the lead up to this. So as markets are falling from sort of the third week of February into the third week of March, um, that's sort of that, that four-week period is when the big correction in markets happened and we're seeing member switching accelerate, which is... Um, Typically, what we find when you look at that behaviour is it's unfortunate uh, because members, like while some members will switch quite early and then will switch back into equity markets quite early and it won't be particularly detrimental, um, a lot of members have a tendency to switch late and then miss out on the rebound. And we saw that in the GFC and I think we're seeing a bit of that now. Um, but it's, well, it's, it's less, a, less a commentary on that, more a commentary on the fact that we know this will happen. Um, so when market corrections happen, you will see switching and 
when you have one happening that quickly, we had switching that was similar to what we experienced in the GFC, just 18 months of switching coming in one month. So you got a huge, huge downturn in markets. You got all this switching happening. And then um, basically at the peak of all of that, uh, you get the announcement that members can now access their super as well. And so, I mean, so I've no issues with it. It was just more just the timing of it made our lives. It was just another, it was just sort of another, um, uh, another challenge from a liquidity point of view at probably one of the more extreme times. Um, and so for us, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't an insurmountable challenge, but that, that was kind of the context when it was announced from an investment point of view. Um, we have a really, um, really thorough, well thought through liquidity management process and so we took that information in and we just used that as another input um even still i mean we modeled it so our finance team was very quick so i think it was announced on a sunday by wednesday we had forecasts that we could use an investment as an investment team um back into that those forecasts were really quite accurate um, um which is quite amazing really if you think about the time frame they'll put together in under um yep. And then, and then really we just managed the fund around that. And we thought about when we think about, we we're thinking about how do we, how do we sort of raise the liquidity? Um, how do we raise it optimally? So we've, we've got a, an awful lot of liquid assets that we can use. Um, and so we're thinking about, I was sort of touched on it earlier, managing exposure using derivatives as part of our team, my team's job as well. So we're thinking about how do we raise, how do we raise liquidity? How do we use derivatives to maintain exposures? How much liquidity do we need to raise to ensure that we can keep taking dynamic asset allocation positions, for example, um, because at that point in time, we're wanting to buy equities. Uh, and so do we need to raise some liquidity to enable us to buy more equities, for example? So all those questions sort of go into the melting pot of our liquidity management, which tells us how much cash we need, how much physical cash we need, and then what derivative exposures we need to get the fund to a position that is consistent with our strategy. How was your data during that period, though, Andrew? Because a lot of what you're deciding you're deciding here are very quick decisions, which are requiring effectively great transparency and integrity of that data as well. I would imagine, and at the same time, you've got things like FX margin calls happening for offshore hedges. So it sounds like you've got a few sort of plates spinning on sticks here. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, exactly. It was it's uh, it was a it was a challenging. Uh, period. I just, I just saw uh, you mentioned it just then, Craig. Queensland just closed their borders, um, so we won't be seeing our friends in Queensland for a while, by the looks of it. Um, so um, the um, yeah, look, I mean, there's just so there's so much going on, um, and data was just critical. And I mean, I know you, I know you're probably asking the question tongue in cheek because you probably had some fairly heated phone calls with me when I was asking you for data at that point. Um, I was one of those managers who had the phone on Andrew and was receiving calls. Correct, <laughs> and uh, I seem I seem quite nice and friendly at this at the moment, but I may have been a little bit less so at that point. Um, it was it You're was very assertive. It was, it was it was genuine crisis conditions, and you need and you're exactly right. You need data, and I think one thing that um, uh, perhaps isn't um, as readily understood is that for the most part, I mean, you have sort of T plus two settlement in our industry so what that what t plus two settlement means is you for the most part unless you try really hard you find out two days after what your data really is um which is what happens from our custodian accounts and unit prices and all this so there's a, there's a lag in information getting to you um so what we were doing at that time 
Um, and this is, I guess, the benefits of the way we manage the fund and um, is that we could, we essentially were using um, derivative market information um, and applying that to our fund to get our best estimate of where we really thought exposure was. So trying to take that two-day lag and get it to effectively zero. So we knew real time and that the the advantage of that, what that was sort of enabling us to do was make decisions real time. And I mean, it's it's hard to know this with certainty, but if we look at, if you look at sort of the yields that were playing out in cash markets, um, and you you can you could really see the flood of money as people were raising liquidity at different points. You could see that money go into cash markets because uh, cash yields moved, like the yields on short dated cash instruments moved substantially in a really short space of time, and it felt like we were a couple of days ahead of that. So it did feel that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we weren't the only ones, but it certainly felt that our data was, and the effort we were putting in was being rewarded because getting in front of that. Um, there was a bit of money to be made by moving into those cash instruments ahead of the rest of the market. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. Um, look, my final question is a slightly different one. Uh, this podcast is going to be going out to a variety of channels, including some advice channels. So it's a wonderful opportunity for you as a senior professional in the superannuation industry to, I suppose, provide some tips or advice to the end members. So what is your tips and advice to the superannuation member uh, that uh, is investing in your funds? Um, thanks very much for the question, Craig. I th- it's um, it's uh, always always a fraught with danger when someone asks me for advice um, because we have to be very careful um, that we're not financial advisors. Uh, there's some very qualified people out there to do that job um, and they do a very important job on behalf of our members. Um, but certainly one thing we can uh, certainly provide as investment professionals when we think about this is one thing that I always think is people should make long-term decisions based on long-term outcomes. And there does feel like there's a tendency for people to react to really short-term bad news and think they've made a bad long-term decision because of short-term bad news. Um, so an event like what's what has just happened is a really good opportunity for people to reassess and rethink what their actual risk profile and risk appetite is. Are they invested in the right way? Uh, but they shouldn't be responding to short-term performance uh, because if you're invested in a 70-30 balanced option with Sun Super, then you've signed up to an investment horizon of somewhere from five to ten years. One month of bad performance is not how you should assess whether or not that was a good decision. So I think keeping in mind what your investment horizon is and if you are one of our members who is sitting through this crisis or living through this crisis and thinking, you know what, perhaps I have do need to reassess what my risk profile is. Um, the best advice we can give is to speak to someone who actually is in the business of giving advice because speak to a financial advisor. One thing we know is that um, for our members, members who get advice get better outcomes. Um, so we've done a lot of research around this. We, we re- fully recognize the value of advice um, and we encourage members who need it to get it because it will be in their interests. Um, and when you get that and the, the beauty of going to talk to a financial advisor rather than trying to work out what advice to take from talking to me is that they can dive into all of your personal circumstances. What is your investment horizon? What is it that you're trying to achieve? How much money do you need in retirement? All these questions um, are the things you should use to decide how much investment risk you're taking rather than what was last month's performance. 
Fantastic answer. We want engaged members, but engaging in the right way. Andrew, mate, thanks very much for spending this time with us on on our podcast. Um, it was absolutely enlightening to sort of hear firsthand what you were going through and your team was going through during the start of that COVID and oil shock crisis. Um, how you've been sort of reflecting and I suppose um, focusing on building in the resilience and how you're going to steer the portfolio into the future. Um, so thanks very much for your time today. And thank you for listening to today's QPod. Don't forget to tune into the second episode where Andrew will talk us on how the pandemic has also rewritten the rule books for long-term investment strategies. One not to miss. Thank you and have a super day.